Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Stories of Special Forces Operators podcast. Listen to some of the bravest and toughest people on the planet share their stories. Sit back and enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. Well, we have one of my favorite returning guests is back, John Stryker. They know him as Tilt Meyer. He's coming back, Mac V. Sog. With me today, co-hosting is Tier 1 operator Sean Taylor. Welcome back, Sean. Thanks for having me, buddy. Thank you for being here today. We're going to be talking to John Meyer. But before we get to do that, have you ever read his books yet? Well, if you haven't, I highly recommend it. Across the Fence, The Secret War in Vietnam, On the Ground, Sog Chronicles. You can get them all on Amazon, and I highly recommend them. You'll see the reviews. They're incredible, really. And, but you know what? He's also got a podcast you don't want to miss called the SOG Cast, S-O-G Cast. Check it out. Yes, we don't care about talking about other podcasts and recommending them. Why not? It helps everybody. So definitely go catch out SOG Cast. Some of those stories are <laughs> really, it's kind of like they're making it up. It's just unbelievable, some of the stuff that you're hearing. <laughs> By the way, Sean Taylor is also the co-host of another podcast called The Collective Live over on YouTube. You can catch them every day at 11 a.m. Pacific time, 11 a.m. Pacific time. Some great conversations. And maybe we'll even see John over there. Who knows? Great oh, stuff yeah. over there. <laughs> I think we will. <laughs> All right, I'll be up for it, Sean. That's before, awesome. we, before we get started, make sure to share, subscribe, hit that like button. And, and you know we like it. I forgot to say what it was. And now it's welcome to the show, John Stryker. <laughs> welcome, Stryker Meyer. How are you, sir? Thank you. It's good to be back. Long time no here. Did I ever tell you that I wrote a book about 10 years ago? It was an action, it was a um mystery novel. This reminds me of when I said John Stryker. And it was uh loosely based on a detective that was working with the daughter of Sherlock Holmes and the detective's name was John Stryker <laughs> no. way before yeah, I met you. Yeah. It's kind of funny. It was my name that I used to love because of a character. Actually, it was kind of funny. Actually, it was a character that was played on a TV show about 30 years ago No, and called cover up. And the guy was a green beret. You might've liked this <laughs> job, John and Sean. Yeah. He was a green beret that actually was doing security detail for models, female models. Oh, that's hard work. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll, leave that, I'll leave that work to John. <laughs> <laughs> so let's do this because we haven't had you on for a while. Um, tell us yes, a little sir. bit about Sawcast. What's this all about? Well, when uh, I had a series of interviews with Jocko Willink, the Navy SEAL, mm-hmm. who had 20 years uh, service to the Navy, and uh, he had two tours of duty in Iraq. And... Uh, after 20 years, he was on the fast track. He would have had more rank, but he had a young family. So he left the Navy to be a dad to his family, went into uh, uh, jiu-jitsu, a bunch of other things, and became a podcaster who's now probably one of the best, right up there with Sean, one of the top 10 uh, you know, podcasters in the country. But a lot of military stories, 
So I did a few interviews with Jocko. And at the end of my last one, he says, you know, we got to do more interviews with the SOG guys. Let's get their stories. I go, oh, sure. Well, I can line up these guys to talk to you. He says, no, let's have you do them. And I said, well, I said, with your, with your skill, your money, and your talent, we can go places. He goes, yeah, um, I'm in. I go, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and sure enough, within a week, Echo Charles, his right-hand man, sent me the microphones, the cameras, and we started doing interviews. And wow. we've got, like I said, we had 35 interviews that have been posted. Their first, they first come up in audio interviews with uh, Spotify and Apple. And then they come up on YouTube. And we have a total of 45 in the can now. And uh, they just posted number 20 on YouTube, which is uh, Rob Graham. And <laughs> I'm sorry, if he were still alive, I would, I would connect you to interview him. But his story was he's the only SOG recon guy who ever ran a target in Cambodia. And he took along a bow and arrow, which he shot at the NVA. Wow. <laughs> Did he bring that with him or he found it? Or what was that he all about? He took it to the field. He <laughs> wanted to be having he wanted to have the ability to kill an NVA silently without having to deal with ammunition and stuff. He was a Canadian, so you know how those Canadians are. What well, <laughs> in the heck is even going on? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh yeah. He's one of our uh, one of our legends for sure. So uh that was just posted on a on YouTube. So you can see him in all his mannerisms. He's just an amazing man. We lost him. I think it was earlier this year. I'm sorry to say. Well, yeah, that's, that's hard. So that's what we're doing. So thanks to Jocko. I've interviewed these folks and uh, we've, uh, we've had three of the people we've interviewed have, have passed away. So we're, it's a race against time to try to get as many of these in as we can. And he pays for the flights. He pays for the hotel rooms. And uh, all the costs. And I, I know we're running up a big tab, but he's been very supportive. And uh, so uh, no complaints. We've had uh, the very first one that got posted now, I think it was two years ago. It's got 220,000 views. So there there is people responding to these. You know, it's interesting. Um, I lost one question. I have to go switch over to the other one. <laughs> There goes that question. How did you like being a podcaster? That's a whole different world, isn't it? Very different. And uh, I have to. I'm always in uh, conflict with myself. Hmm. I talk too fast, so I'm always like trying to throttle down the speed. You know, like <laughs> instead of putting the pedal to the metals, like try to speak more clearly and slow down a little bit. I, I love it. I mean, these stories. Plus, I get a chop an opportunity to meet a lot of guys I've heard about. And I've never had a chance to um, to talk to them directly. So we get them and we get their stories. And uh, each guy, each one of our guys that have been there, they have their stories that are unique and amazing. It's a great way to honor them. A great way to honor them. Well, thank you for mentioning it. It's a great way to start. But yeah, those are, they're all there for your listeners and, uh, and as well as the first 20 up on YouTube now. Absolutely. Again, folks, it's SOGCast. Go catch it out on YouTube. It's really a great way to, to look at individuals that probably never get a chance to really meet. It's kind of hard to meet. No. 
personally. Sean, I don't know if you have anything right now. I do. I do have a couple of thoughts. Uh, but the first thing that I want to say is, uh, of course, it's obviously an honor to be talking with you, John. Uh, I'm going to jump in the time machine and I'm going to go back. Well, I turned <clears throat> 60 this year. I'm going to jump back like mm, almost uh, 45 years ago. When I was a young kid, uh, my mom says at the age of five, I wanted to become a soldier. And so uh, I, I took a interest in all things military. Any book that I could pick up that had some reference to the military, I was reading it. And uh, John, I may have read about you when I was a young teenager, because my fascination at the time was uh, Mac V. Sog uh, and all things related to special operations in Vietnam and the Vietnam era. Uh, at, at the time, as a young boy, there was no real heroes in my life. And somehow I aligned with, uh, I established uh, uh, men who were over there doing the more elite uh, uh, trajectory uh, during the Vietnam War era. I established those as my heroes, as, as the, the men that uh, I wanted to be. And so uh, it's fascinating to me now that I get to talk to you in a podcasting session and, and what you've just relayed is so important because if not for you capturing these uh, stories and the history of that era and the, the great men and the great lessons learned and all of the wisdom that can be passed on, well, now there's only books left. And so uh, I really uh, appreciate you engaging in podcasting. And I just wanted to shout out to Jocko. I, I knew that he had started this initiative with you to some degree. I just wasn't sure uh, to what depth and, and based on what you just said. Uh, I'm already a big fan of Jocko. It's just added an extra little bit of uh, uh, fanboy fandom to uh, the fact that he's supporting <laughs> you so heavily and uh, uh, for all the right reasons. So uh, shout out to you and Jocko, of course. Oh, thank you. And uh, that's amazing. And, and to hear that, it just makes it all worthwhile, you know. And then also, did you read Soldier of Fortune magazine back in the day? Oh, listen, Soldier Fortune was my magazine for sure. That I I uh, I couldn't couldn't wait to see it, and I could I, I'd read it several times before I'd put it down. You know, Soldier Fortune sure. magazine was the thing. You know, yeah, because some of my early stories I wrote for Soldier of Fortune, I used the Nom de Gier. I think thoughts. Oh, interesting. Yeah, S T A A T S thoughts. Isaac. Interesting. Interesting. So that's my because I worked at a newspaper. If they knew I was working for a Soldier of Fortune, they would have fired me in a New York City second. <laughs> so I had to use a, a Bob Brown. Let me use a Nom de Gere. Or right, a Nom that's de cool. Gere, depends on whether you're, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> well, thank you. Hearing that, and then to think about what you guys have done. I've heard about some of your fellow uh, Canadians. And the commandos up there, we talked to over a couple years ago. We've had some Zoom meetings. It's going to go up there before COVID to speak. But then, of course, COVID, the curse, the China the curse. curse. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, maybe you didn't get to go up there and have those conversations, but hopefully that'll happen in the near future. And here's why, because uh, books can provide inspiration and podcasts can provide inspiration. But there's nothing more inspiring than looking a guy in the eye and shaking his hand and making that connection. So hopefully someday, I mean, you and I may never get to physically meet, but if you could make your way up to Canada and inspire some of the young soldiers, some of the young men who are either entering into or have been in special operations community up here, I'm sure it would leave a big mark. 
Well, I'm honored. And if I if the opportunity comes up, Sean, trust me, I'll be there. Mm, if I have to hitchhike, I'll be glad to get up there for sure. Well, I'd give you a ride. <laughs> of course, we connect with Canada these days. They even let my books in. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I want to keep them all to myself. <laughs> Speaking of that, again, it's John Stryker, Meyer, the books on the ground, Saw Chronicles, and where's it going? Across the Fence, The Secret War in Vietnam. Hey, John, I had a question for you. I bumped into a gentleman down here. I have yet to meet him in person. <laughs> He's been kind of elusive for me. But I had to ask you the question since I had you on the show. Uh, he had a van that said Delta on it, but it also said Mac V Sog on it. And then, really? yeah, it was that's what was unusual about it because I kept walking by going, I've never seen something like that. It was a super duper green dark van with tinted windows all the way around. There's no way he's driving that very far without getting ticketed. But um, he mentioned something called he was a green blue or a blue a green, green blue or a blue green. Does that make sense to you? Um, I don't know what that meant. In the very early days when they were forming Delta Force, they had a, uh, while they're putting together Delta Force, they put together a thing called Blue Light. And mm -hmm. they were doing some of the Delta Force missions. And um, so they were doing those kind of missions that were anti terrorist, uh, POWs, not much POW, but the, uh, if there are aircraft, you know, back then, this is in the early 70s, mid 70s, when the terrorists were beginning to hijack aircraft. And so while uh, Colonel Beckwith was putting together the Delta Force, Blue Light was SF guys and some others that were trained up and they were doing those missions. And then when Delta Force was ready to go, I don't have the complete history of that, but they merged them. There are some angst between the two, but the Force went on to become the premier uh, organization for the United States for the military for anti-terrorism. Highest standards. And to this day, they're just kicking ass and taking numbers. And they have their own facility down at Bragg. They train. They train hard. And they keep the lid on. It's not like the uh, Navy SEALs or the Marine Corps where if they go on a mission, they'll have if they have a six-man team, they'll have three writers and a photographer and a videographer. They do the mission, and in the true Special Forces spirit, they do it and come back. And they take pride in a successful mission. They don't talk about it. Yeah, they don't and talk about much. books out there that are really <laughs> up, to, up to speed or adult the force, but they really kick ass to take numbers. Yeah, they do. And uh, I had the extreme privilege, uh, the honor of uh, being, uh, I would say, the first Canadian, one, one of two guys, a two-man team went down to, when I was in Joint Task Force 2 or Tier 1 Special Operations, we were a fairly or relatively new team at that point. And so I got sent down as a team warrant officer to uh, uh, link up and work alongside of and participate in the uh, Delta selection uh, process. Uh, I really? won't, uh, yeah, I won't say specifically what uh, phases I uh, was uh, on, uh, but uh, when I showed up, it was things were tight, very tight in the in respect to secrecy or security, and uh, it was only just recently uh, I'm going to talk about maybe over the last year that I finally publicly said, uh, so yeah, I was one of the first uh, guys, the first Canadians to go down and work uh, at their facility. And uh, 
yeah, you know, there's there's a certain reason that things are kept quiet, and oh, yeah. uh, and and they do a great job of it. And I felt that, uh, and I feel that Joint Task Force Two does a great job of keeping the lid on things. And so it was my responsibility not to talk about being the first dude down there to stand next <laughs> to those legends. Uh, but it was a yeah. it was a real nice moment, man. And and those guys are squared away. Well, they are. And then you spent a little time in West Virginia too, right? <laughs> All over the place. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey john tell us a little bit about you mentioned before the show before we got started you were talking about um cliff i'm getting confused between josh yeah cliff, newman. <laughs> yeah, cliff yes, newman what was that all about well cliff um he was in the army and before he went in the army he was a parachutist he had been doing free fall things like that and uh he was in the army he wound up in germany he learned about special forces there because we had the 10th special forces group was assigned to Germany, Bad Tolls. So Cliff was interested in special forces. Then finally he uh, re-enlisted and uh, for special forces, went through the training, and uh, he arrived at Command and Control North, uh, MACV-SOG, at the end of 69 or very early of 1970. So he and I had a few months together at uh, CCN, and uh, he ran recon for at least a year. And he was, Cliff was on the team that did the first halo, high altitude, low opening parachute jump into Laos. And uh, he had three Americans, and I think it was three or four indigenous troops that went with him. They trained up first because they had to train the little people up. And then they got the mission. They jumped. They jumped at night. I think they jumped from 18,000 feet. And um, the Air Force had given them uh, a new device, a homing device. So the theory was they took the homing device. They would jump in, get on the ground, turn on their homing device so they could find each other in the jungle. There was just one little problem. They weren't waterproof. And they jumped in the rain. So by the time they got to the ground, the homing devices were, if you'll pardon the expression, like tits on a boar hog, completely useless. Oh, and uh, so they 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 had a hard time locating each other. But they they gathered some intel about uh, about Laos, did reports, and got pulled out. And they were the first of five SOG recon teams that parachuted in the layoffs and that are halo jumps. And then we had 12 parachute jumps after that by SOG teams, but they were conventional jumps and some were in Laos, a couple were Cambodia. And then they had one or two in Vietnam supporting conventional A teams, the A camps that were under siege at the time. And they jumped in for a tactical recon in an effort to locate enemy troops and the better direct uh, uh, tack air on the NVA that were attacking the A camp, but each one was a historic in its own nature. Yeah, yeah they were really historic. I, re- I remember reading about them again as a teenager, and uh, <laughs> and and thinking to myself like, "Wow, if I ever get into the military, I have to be doing these things." And sure enough, I became a military freefall parachutist and. And a variety of different other things and and there's 
there's it's one thing to be at 18,000 feet in the pitch black and and jumping with all the gear that never works because that's the military uh but um you know the it's the other aspect of uh, um understanding that someone carved the way for me to be there there were pioneers who who had the brass who had the focus who had the wherewithal to understand that things just have to get done and I'm the right guy to do it and then engaging in that process for all the righteous reasons if not for heroes or legends like that uh guys like me wouldn't have been inspired to go do the things that I thought were righteous so I mean these kind of stories from that era are just they they tell a tale of how my life unfolded because of those tales to some degree Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that is cool. John, How many uh, years were you in, Sean? Pardon me? How many years were you in altogether? I served 13 years in the military. Outstanding. I'm going to put a psychology cap on John for a minute. So <laughs> on this individual, when you interviewed him, did you know him before? Cliff? Yeah. Oh, yes, sir. We were together oh. at CCN. Yeah, I okay. met there when... Uh, at the clubhouse, of course, and he was this tall, handsome guy, highly confident. And uh, when they looked for volunteers, they went to Cliff to be a team member because of his past experience as a civilian, being a uh, doing free fall. So uh, on that team, Mel Hill was the one zero, the team leader, and then Sammy Hernandez was the one one, and then Cliff was the one two. So the idea was to jump in, gather as a team, and then do area recon. But uh, because of the weather and the homing devices not working, they were on the ground. And uh, a couple of guys met somebody in Didge, and they were on the ground for two or three days. But they, they got extracted, and they all came back to base. Wow. I guess the reason I asked you, I was going to see, if, did you see any characteristics that he had that would make him such a – such a brave soldier to do what he did. I mean, he was the first to go in there. And as you mentioned, to allow us to jump off. I mean, it's not, he can't do what Sean did and kind of look at other people and say, oh, wow, this is amazing. I want to do what they, he had nothing. <laughs> He's just like yeah, jumping. They did, did. They they wrote the book on it. That's for sure. And uh, I think, you know, Cliff is just the epitome of the quiet professional. He's really, he's smart. He's savvy. He's got common sense and uh, he's tall. He's like six, four, Oh, wow. He's a big guy. And uh, so he's a big target out there. But still, um, he ran recon. And uh, in my third book, uh, Solid Chronicles, there was a, uh, another team had been on the ground and they made enemy contact and they had a helicopter that came in, picked up the first part of the team. And then the last helicopter came in to pick up uh, the last three Americans that were on the ground. And as the helicopter was leaving, it got hit by anti-aircraft fire. It spun around. It crashed into a mountainside, killing all the Americans on the helicopter. And when the helicopter was going up, Sammy, um, Sammy Hernandez, his rope broke. And he fell to the ground, was knocked unconscious. And fortunately, that saved his life. Because the other two Americans died when that helicopter crashed. So um, 
and Sammy was on the ground all night. And in the morning, the NVA at night, they were looking for him at night with dogs, but they didn't find him. He was hitting in a, in a thicket of thorns and whatnot. And then in the morning, he had to get up. He had, he had dislocated his shoulder, so he had to relocate his shoulder by hammering it into a tree. <laughs> And then uh, Billy Wall was out flying over the AO, getting ready to put the bright light team in with Cliff Newman on it. And he saw uh, Sammy on the ground with a panel. So they rescued Sammy, and then they put in Cliff Newman's team, and they were on the ground. They located the six dead Americans. They had them all in body bags. They moved them to a location, but the daylight was closing in on them. And the helicopters didn't have enough time to get to the bodies or to the team that night. So at first light, the NVA hit the team, hit the team hard. And so the team went from recovering of the bodies to survival. And they survived the mission. Several were wounded. And Cliff, again, was on that mission. And to his credit, he he got the whole the whole team got out. And uh, but they had to leave behind the six dead Americans. And Cliff has since been back to Laos with the DPAA, the uh, the Department of POW MIA Accountability Agency. And he went back a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago, trying to locate where the bodies were. And they had issues with the aircraft, it was a failed mission. He went back now would be, gosh, maybe uh, went back to Laos five or six years ago, or maybe seven. And he went back, but again, they couldn't get to the hill where they knew they left the bodies. And so DPAA is working on that again, and Cliff may go back a third time with DPAA. And that's the kind of guy he is. He just doesn't quit. And uh, during his second tour of duty, uh, Cliff had lost a part of his leg in a, in a booby trap. And so he walks with a prosthesis, but he just gets up and goes. He still jumps. He has over 3,000 parachute jumps in his lifetime. Just a complete stud. And then about 15 years ago, my wife and I and our daughter went to Cliff's wedding when he married the sister of Dale Denneke, who's one of our MIAs from... Uh, well, KIA from SOG from Vietnam in 1970. Oh, man. So it's all in the family. It's a, it's a SOG wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and they're living happily now up in Prescott, Arizona. Oh, man. I don't know about you, Sean. I mean, my heart rate goes up every time John shares a story. It's just like so intense. Unbelievable. Just oh, another day in SOG, Carlos. Yeah, well, it is important. It's It's important that you and I, Doc, have that same response because – it's those kind of stories or it's that kind of response that is uncommon uh, nowadays, as far as I'm concerned, or at least for me, that it, it takes a lot for me to raise my heart rate when I'm listening <laughs> to a story. And just because I've heard a few or I've been around enough legends that uh, I, I'm, I'm a pretty chill guy, but it's these kind of stories that are really inspiring. And I want to go back to when I was a teenager those stories inspired me to become what I am now. And uh, ironically, it's a story like this that I can tie into just a couple of days ago. My son, my youngest son, he just turned 18. 
and I were out at a uh, at a get together of veterans out on Vancouver Island where we were doing a bunch of skydiving. And so uh, I got to jump out of a perfectly good airplane with uh, my son, along with some of the legends that I used to serve with. And really? uh, yeah, funnily enough, uh, the first jump uh, that my son did uh, this just uh, uh, just a few days ago was with a guy who had lost both legs. Uh, had, so he's a, a military veteran, a jump master, and he dispatched my son out of the plane while uh, he was wearing his prosthetics. And so, um, you know, it's important for my boys, uh, our boys, to be around legends like that, uh, to raise the bar of mediocrity in their minds so that they can understand that uh, my friends are studs and that the studs out there in the world that impress me are next level, uh, uh, well beyond the idea of mediocrity. These are folks who are leading the way through their actions. They're inspiring others through their life. And uh, so your stories, uh, the story that you just relayed uh, is is uh, the equivalent of in my modern world, what I just came out of over just a few days ago. Legends are legends and we all need to be inspired by legends. So you're there for your son's cherry jump? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was, wow. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah that's it's, very you, cool. You, you can imagine it, it was good. Yeah, I can't imagine. That's really, really cool beyond description. Yeah, yeah, it was for sure. I saw Sean's eyes light up too when when you said three thousand. Yeah, oh, yeah. I've, only, I've only got three hundred and seventy, so that's times ten of my numbers. So, uh, <laughs> you know, like again, legendary. Man, yeah, I have sixteen, insane. so I'm a wimp compared to you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yours are a little different than mine, maybe. <laughs> Did you have any stories about your jumps, John? Anything happen when? Because it seems like every time I talk to you and Dick. I don't know where, what the military got for equipment or where they bought this stuff. <laughs> because every time I hear this story, something backfires on the work, something breaks. It's like, holy cow, what's going on over there? But did you have oh, any yeah. stories when you jumped at all? No, no. My jumps were all stateside. And okay. uh, so I went through training. And then we were going through special forces training. And then when I came back in between my uh, first and second tour of duty in Vietnam, we had to jump to stay jump qualified to get your jump pay. So, um, like in my case, my paycheck before jump school as a private was $50 a month. So with jump pay, then for an enlisted, it was $55. So I had a 102% pay raise by uh, going through jump school. So I was I was rich, man. <laughs> but all my jumps were just there. So, uh, and then in early 1970, Billy Wall came to CCN and he was talking about jumping into Laos, you know, and Lynn Black and I had talked about it, but we never talked about Halo because just the idea of jumping from 18, 20,000 feet, free fall, get down and get your team assembled on the ground into jumping into triple canopy. It just, to my mind, it just couldn't see how it could be done. Now we thought about maybe jumping at 500 feet. So you jump, get out of the airplane and land. It's really quick. Either you make it or you don't. <laughs> and Lynn and I go, eh, I don't think we want to do Halo. So, uh, and we, and by the time I got done, my tour ended suddenly in the middle of April of uh, 1970. So we never got around to jumping. But later, my recon team with another team leader did. They trained up, and somebody in Dig were uh, on one of the jumps as well as several of the prior 
American team members. They were on a couple of the halo jumps. Stuff. You know, that was like something out of my bill. We stuck with the old fashioned way, helicopters in and out. <laughs> you said something interesting there. And, and uh, I think that you're being quite humble when, when you said it uh, and contextualizing your jumps, your low jumps, so we'll say that's, uh, you know, 500 feet or whatever the case is versus the unknown uh, nighttime, 18,000 feet, triple canopy, maybe never yeah. being done before figured out, but this has been my experience. Um, but uh, I think the lowest I've ever jumped uh, is about 800 feet and that's low. I, I felt it was low when you're looking out that door, ready to go. The ground seems to be moving pretty quick. And it seems real close. <laughs> and so there's not a heck of a lot of time to uh, sort out any problems in the air. However you go out, hopefully it goes well, because you don't have much time to sort out things that aren't going well. So there's there's a great amount of courage to go out at uh, a low altitude, I feel. And maybe, I, I don't want to say which one's more courageous, but certainly having jumped uh, at nighttime from great heights into uh, maybe adverse terrain that that's also got its own challenges. Uh, so I think oh, yeah. both of them are pretty courageous, man. Oh, thank you. Yeah. We had talked about uh, for our, our field training exercise to graduate for special force. We jumped to 800 feet. And like you said, that, that still was pretty quick. I mean, you really don't have time for an emergency parachute yeah, no, you you jump and look for, look for a landing spot. And then you're on the ground. <laughs> There's not much time under the cell. <laughs> you you said something else there in respect to uh, the the first team to jump into Laos and, and solving some of these technical problems or some of the uh, unknown uh, issues that they may face. And uh, I think that that's something that is kind of overlooked to some degree within the military history aspect uh, of the all of the first time moments that... Uh, uh, created all of the great lessons that have now become kind of SOPs or standard operating procedures on how to do things better. The idea being that all of those pioneers uh, that that made the failures, that learned the lessons, that created the new systems, uh, sometimes they're not given enough credit uh, per se in respect to the modern warrior who uh, the standard operating procedures have been in place a long time. And, and it's almost business as usual now, almost like getting off a bus. But at, at one time, that bus, the first time that uh, someone climbed on that bus to jump out at 18,000 feet at nighttime, well, that bus was going sideways and missing a wheel and uh, the back end of the bus was on fire. So maybe some people don't always uh, keep that uh, front and foremost in their minds on, on the, uh, uh, the shoulders uh, that they're standing on per se. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the men that did it, I just really admired their courage and just amazed that they all survived it. We, um, one of the teams had a KIA, he got hung up in a tree and, uh, we, we still don't know the complete story, but he was still listed as KIA. But the majority of the SF men came back from the five halo jumps as well as all the parachute jumps. So it's kind of like, wow. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Again, folks, we're talking to John Stryker Meyer. You can get, he's got three books you can recommend over there at Instagram, Instagram, over there on uh, Amazon, Across the Fence, The Secret War in Vietnam, Saw Chronicles on the Ground. They're in a particular order. So I would definitely start in that order. You can also catch more about him on Sog Cast. 
You know, John, I wanted to ask you this question out of curiosity. In Sawcast, any story, you've interviewed, I think, over 30. So I understand if you don't want to share anybody you haven't posted yet, but anything that stood out to you saying, God, <laughs> that one really stood out compared to anything else or something that really just struck you differently from one of those 30? Well, I went into it with a bias. I mean, in my mind, one of the all-time SOG, because the sequel wars for eight years. And if you put the most dangerous combat-driven missions, like, say, the very most dangerous, it had a top five. One of the top five would have to be uh, Spike Team Alabama, a nine-man team that went into an Ashaw Valley October uh, 5th, 1968. And they had an inexperienced team leader. And when they jumped, when the helicopters took him in, Lynn Black, who was a veteran from the 173rd, was the uh, he was the radio operator for that team. And he said, look, there's an NVA flag here. We're a nine-man team. This is probably an NVA battalion of 3,000. He said, we should report to headquarters that there's a battalion here. Call back the helicopters. Let's get the hell out of here. The inexperienced one zero said, no, no gook is going to run me off of my target. My mission is to do an, a recon. Well, he compounded his error by marching the team down a trail. And the trail eventually went down a hill. Oh, and the NVA put together an L-shaped ambush, which was, as the team went down the hill, the L would be on the right and the bottom of the L would be where they were marching towards. So at one point, 50 NVA opened fire on that nine-man recon team. They killed the point man instantly. He was really a good guy, a good point man. They killed the inexperienced one zero. They wounded a third, and then they had a firefight. And this battle went on all day. At one point, Spike Team Alabama killed so many NVA. They came at them at waves, and they would kill them. They would stack up the dead bodies. They used that as a bulwark against the next assault. When they ran out of bullets, or like in Lynn Black's case, he got hit by a, a concussion grenade. The impact destroyed his car 15, shredded him, and tore his clothing, made him bloody, and knocked him unconscious. And so they all began using the AK-47s of the dead NVA that they had killed. And they used those weapons for the rest of the day and were extracted. And the reason why we know these numbers is about 20 years later, America went back for the inexperienced uh, team leader. They couldn't find him, but Lynn Black had worked with our government. One day he was working at Boeing. That's where his job was at Boeing Aircraft. He got a phone call from a guy who was an NVA general. He said, I attacked your team October the 5th, 1968. And he was in that 50-man element that triggered the ambush. And they talked back and forth a little bit. And uh, at some point, the NVA goes, you know, who was the radio operator? Because when we ambushed your team, everybody went to the ground except for the radio operator. He stood there shooting and replacing his magazine and shooting more of my men. And Lynn goes, well, that was me. And the general goes, you shot me three times. Oh, wow. 
So that's uh-huh. one of our top five missions. And Lynn Black was there on that mission. And the reason why we know it was 10,000 men, Lynn, at the end, they're discussing this. And uh, Lynn goes, well, you killed three of our men. And the NVA general goes, well, you and the Air Force and the helicopter gunships inflicted 90% casualties on our NVA division, which was 10,000 men that day. Insane. I know, totally insane. So that's one of those all-time top 10 stories. And Lynn Black is one of those on Sawcast. We've got two of the uh, two of his interviews back-to-back, and they're available on uh, like Spotify and Apple. And hopefully within the next few months, they'll come up on YouTube. So men like that, I knew, got the interview. We had others like John Plaster, who had mm-hmm. three tours of duty, and uh, several other men, some aviators now. We have A1 Sky Raider pilot we just interviewed and uh, talked about what it was like flying support for SOG. And then, of course, the helicopter gun crews, what they went through. So that's all part of the SOG cast. I have a question for you, John. What what kind of, not support are you getting, but what kind of feedback are you getting uh, from the podcast that you're putting out or that you're part of? It's, it's very uh, up, uplifting. The majority of the uh, feedback, 99.69%, it's all good. People like it. Young people like yourself, because you're still a young guy. You're the new, you're the new old. But you're still just out of my diapers. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And we get people that uh, like your story that said, hey, you know, I I've read your stories of Soldier of Fortune or now we've got young men. I've had uh, two men that I I went to their graduation when they graduated from Special Forces training. And they started out with a Jaco podcast. They heard the podcast. They weren't sure what they wanted to do. They joined the army, qualified for special forces, and today they're uh, they're both in special forces, wearing our proud hair, headgear, and doing God's work. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, did did you ever see this coming? I mean, did you ever? No. no. And and now that you're in the mix, now that you're in the thick of it, uh, have you? Has it? How has it changed your life? Well, it's just I'm I'm still learning. I'm still amazed by the whole process. I just and uh, because we see what's going on with our country and even your country to a lesser extent, the things that are going on that attack our country, the, the Christian values, the morality or lack of morality, and the things that are going on, we need our soldiers more than ever, and the traditions that we have to hold the country together and uh, to move forward, hopefully a better a better day for both countries. That's for sure. So I guess psychologically, there's something special about soft individuals. I've noticed every soft guy that I've ever interviewed um, has this ability to, there's two things I've always seen cognitive flexibility in the world, in our world, we call it that. So every time you have a problem, you got to figure it out. Like they did the guns got blown up. So we switch over to the AK 47s and move along. And then the other one is just never giving up. No matter what was going on, it, it, did it ever cross your mind where you thought, crap, this is going to be it, or I can't do this? Anything at all cross your mind like that ever? No, because, well, there was just one time where um, 
we had been on the ground. It was the uh, first day of a mission. And um, we got into a target. And it was a great insertion. And we went up, up the mountainside. We crossed the trail, set up an ambush. They didn't know we were there. We're taking pictures. We had a wiretap going because the CIA told us whenever you get a, a, a phone line, even if you can't hear anything, tap it, record it. Because when you bring it back, then uh, we amplify it 100 times. And the NVA phones at that time, when they put the phone in the cradle, it was still alive. Like our phones, when you put the phone in the cradle, it, it turns off. But these were still alive. And so we recorded them, turned the tapes over to the CIA, and they'd amplify them. And they said sometimes they got some great intel for those, but never, I mean, like I turned the tapes, it's always a one-way street. You turn the stuff in, you never hear anything back. There was just a general discussion with some of the guys we met years later. Said, oh, yeah, we learned things from those tapes. Well, was it my tape? Oh, I don't know. But... Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, we were on the ground, and then we were going to get a POW. Had the whole thing set up. Spider Parks, who was our my former team leader, was flying as a Covey rider in the fact. And we get when he flew in for a combo check, I gave him the code. I said, one hour, I'll be back at the LZ. We're going to have a POW. Gave him the code. And he goes, and remember, we're in triple canopy. So I can't tell whether the sun is out. Or if the sun is up the NVA's ass, I don't know where it is. It's it's triple canopy, 150 feet of uh, jungle between us and on the ground. He goes, "Don't move. I'm at 10,000 feet. I can't see the mountain you're on, let alone find your LZ. The weather had socked in, and so had we gotten a POW, they couldn't have come for us. Back in those days, the helicopters didn't have navigation." Where they could fly through bad weather, infrared or things like that. And so uh, when that happened, then we heard tanks begin above us. All the enemy activity in the trail became much more intense. Then the game was on. And we pulled down the wiretap, pulled in the ambush, and we moved out. And as we're moving out, we could hear the dogs coming up the mountain that were down by our LZ. And so we moved, I forget, I'll just say for here, we moved east, away from the LZ, away from the uh, our ambush site. And um, because Sal, my counterpart, had climbed a tree and said there's hundreds of men coming up the mountain with lanterns, and we could hear the dogs. So we got into a little stream, and we went up the stream in the dark for at least an hour. And we went out, came back went out and came back, putting up false trails for the dogs. And then we put down patterned mace and black pepper. So if the dogs hit it with the nose, it would foul their nose. So finally, we went up the right bank, set up our team perimeter for the night. And I was facing this that little water stream area. And it was about a 12, 15-foot embankment from that little stream up to where I'm sitting. And... About 1 o'clock in the morning, two NVA walked past in the stream. They walked past. And one had a lantern, and the other guy, we could just see him walking. I couldn't tell if he had a weapon or not. He went up, 
and the um, lantern ran out of fuel. They turned around and came back. Then I could hear them. Now, I don't know if anybody else on the team could hear them, but I'm facing that little stream, and I can hear these guys. And they come when they got right by me, walking past down the stream. Hep, my interpreter coughed, and that was the night the NVA crawled up the mountain and touched my boot. I'm sitting there, and this guy was really good. I mean, he only moved when the wind blew, but he eventually got to me, touched my size 10 jungle boot, and he I could hear him catch his breath. Had he moved suddenly, he would have been dead. But I didn't want to shoot him because that would have been an indicator for the enemy to know where we were. So he eventually crawled back down the mountain. He left. The next morning, we were up at first light, and we went all day because Spider came back and said, look, we're still at 10,000 feet. I can't see your mountains. Get to high ground. Stay there until the weather gets better. So we did that. And uh, while we were en route to do that, we went all day. And right near the end, we took a short break. When I got up, I fell down. I landed on my face. I got up again, landed on my face, and I was so tired. I just wanted to roll over and go to sleep. Hmm. So it's different than wanting to quit, but it's kind of quitting. I just wanted to go to sleep right there. I was dead, tired. The team was beat. We had spotted woodcutters. So we had some eye, eye contact with them, but they had no weapons, and they ran away. We left them alone. Then we went up to the top of the mountain. We finally left and just got up. I knew the whole team was looking at me. I was the team leader. So I forced my dumb ass up. But right there, I really, I just wanted a little nap, you know, a little pock time. So that was the closest I came to thinking of it. that the thought crossed my mind. But for terms of your initial question, worried about getting overrun or saying, are we going to, no. It's just, mm. that's our, our esprit de corps. Like we're here for the mission and uh, we're going to fight to the bloody end. Because I've never heard that from you or Dick. I mean, not, not one time has he ever, I mean, Dick no. kind of mentioned, yeah, this is a scary moment. That was about the about the farthest extent that he ever got to it. And he never said anything about quitting. Not that I know of, at least. No. And the same thing with you. Yeah, I just never hear it. That's amazing. I don't know if you have a follow-up on that, Sean. Or not. It's kind of hard to follow I, up on I, that. I do. There, there's a, a couple of little things that I'd like to add, but they're not uh, going to build out a better story. They're just going to give a nod to the story that I just heard. Because, again, when I was a young boy uh, reading anything I could about Mac V. Sog, I don't know if you, uh, you had written this stuff, John, or if someone else had written this stuff uh, back in the day, but... I when I was a young boy, I've stated that uh, I used to go out and hunt rabbits and squirrels and goonie birds uh, pretty much every day, all year long, <laughs> spring, summer, winter, fall, all day, uh, all the time. And uh, the books that I was reading back then, uh, for some reason, whether it was a childhood fantasy or whether it was childhood inspiration, it doesn't much matter what. I used to hunt like I was a Mac V Sog guy. I used to track like I was a Mac V Sog guy. In fact, one of the early <laughs> good habits that I picked up before I joined the military was uh, hunting uh, down a river, like moving back and forth uh, across the river to to have any imaginary dog lose my scent, as it were, which, of course, I carried on through into my legitimate military career. So sure. that, that's kind of an interesting aspect. And I think the other piece is that uh, as, as you're talking about 
um, the the things that you learned up on that hill and uh, how someone touched your jungle boot. Well, funnily enough, it was uh, reading about Mac V. Sog, uh, these stories that made me want to own my first set of jungle boots. So when I finally got into the military and got into a position where I could wear at JB's, well, I wore them freaking everywhere. <laughs> I, I was known as a guy who liked jungle boots, even though they're a hard sole for running long distances in. I like to wear my jungle boots, man. And and so uh, I don't know who, who was the biggest influence uh, uh, from that era, the Mac V. Sog era, all the reading that I did. But someone influenced me and it just made me feel right uh, in the moment uh, whenever I was uh, moving up a stream with my JBs on. <laughs> Hey, That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God, Sean. <laughs> Again, folks, oh. talking to John Stryker Meyer, the books Across the Fence, The Secret War in Vietnam, Sog Chronicles on the Ground. Also, catch out, catch Sog Cast, S O G C A S T, some amazing stories over there. John, I know you've mentioned this before, so, so I apologize, but what are some of the distinctions between these three books? Well, the first book was um, me and some of my friends entering the secret war, what it was like, you know, going through basic um, and then getting to, to uh, Vietnam and uh, actually um, signing up for the secret war. Because they told us, some of the guys said, when you when we went through training group, some of the senior guys said, you know, when you get to Vietnam, you guys are green. You're green, green berets. Go to Nam, get on an eighteen, learn about how the country works, learn about the customs, the people, and be advised. At the end of your in-country training, some little guy's going to come out and say, "Hey, we got a project. We're looking for volunteers. Don't do it. Just go to an A camp, get your act together. And then, if you want to think about projects, learn about them." So, this is May nineteen sixty-eight. The Duke John Wayne had been out with the movie, The Green Berets. They showed it in the train when we were going through in-country training. So the little guy comes out. Sure enough, we're looking for volunteers. Johnny McIntyre goes, uh, for what? He can't say. Either you're in or you're not. So, of course, what would the Duke do? He would have he would have listed. So we all volunteered, get the briefing, go to a uh, uh, go. Up. Oh, we got to sign the FOB1 at Fubai. And we also learned at the end of that briefing that a man who had trained us, we were going through special forces training for our military, our MOS training, military occupational status. We were combo guys. We were learning Morse code. And me and several of the other guys were having a hard time. We got recycled. And a guy named Paul Villarosa, Sergeant First Class Paul Villarosa, trained us. He came in at night. He came in on the weekends. He got us up to speed. And he had had three tours in Vietnam. He had a tattoo on his neck that said, cut here. Well, we learned at that briefing in May of 68, we went through training group in 67. In May of 68, we learned that in January, the first recon mission out of FOB4 Da Nang, he was the team leader. He was killed by the NVA. We learned later, not only was he killed, but he was tortured by the NVA and they burned his body with a flamethrower. So the book talks about those early days. We have a team mission where John Walton was the medic. John was the son of Sam Walton from Walmart fame. Oh, yeah. 
Yes, sir. And they had a six-man team. Um, they got overrun three times. The third time they were getting overrun, the team leader called a gun run on the team. So A1 Sky Raider came in with the gun run. It broke the enemy attack, killed one team member. Tom Cunningham got hit by two rounds, one on his radio, a 20 mic mic round, and the other hit his leg, sending him through the air. And Tom saw himself flying through the air, had this out-of-body experience. And uh, John Walton was the medic. He brought everybody back as South Vietnamese King Bee pilot. Captain Tin came back, picked up the team, and saved everybody that for that mission. We have the Lynn Black mission, some of our stories. And then um, on the ground was more because I always try to get other guys' stories. Because a lot of them are better than my stuff. And we do on the ground was more stories, me going back, going to Da Nang. And uh, then we had some funny stories in there. And then the third saw Chronicles, like I said earlier, where we focused on Operation Tailwind, September 11th to the 14th, 1970, where they had a uh, hatchet force of 16 Green Berets, 120 in Didge, went further west beyond our regular AO to support the CIA. And the they moved day and night. They destroyed two enemy caches, and uh, they barely got out of there alive, killed hundreds of NVA. And the medic, Gary Mike Rose, from that mission, he was the only medic, over 50 or 60 of the men of the 132 were wounded. And Mike Gary Mike Rose brought them all back. And he he earned the Medal of Honor. President Trump gave him the Medal of Honor um, in October 23rd, 2017 at the White House. So those are the three books, basically. Other stories, little things in between, like some humor, a couple of funny stories where, like we had one night, there was a movie night. And we used to have a sheet. So there's no screen, but we have a sheet up, right? And it was a movie about, General Custer being overrun by the Indians. Well, one of the final scenes, the Indians are coming down the hill. A couple of the indigs jumped up with their M16s and fired at the at the uh, curtain and tore it up. <laughs> so for now, we had no more weapons allowed to the movies. <laughs> Check all weapons at the popcorn stand. Yeah, <laughs> yes, indeed. And then we had like uh, Lynn Black had my team. He had Idaho. And they, they for two days and nights, they were being tracked. They thought it was the NVA tracking them. So finally in the morning, they made a stand, had their pins pulled for their hand grenades. They figured if the NVA come, we're going to duke it out right here. Well, they met a family of orangutans. And the orangutans had been following them for two days. Oh, so little stories like that. We try to have not all guts and gore, you know. I try to mix it up a little bit. <laughs> well, those stories are important. I mean, all of these stories are important. I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but uh, mm. it's it's these kind of stories that inspired me 45 years ago and uh, put me on the path towards special operations or tier one. And uh, to this day, I guess one of the reasons that I'm in front of a microphone podcasting is because I'm trying to figure out a way to hold up my end. And and that is, I've, I'm, I'm being told that, I need to start inspiring others uh, to lead uh, more, more large 
and in charge lifestyles. And so I'm trying to figure out how to do that. And it's conversations like this with you, John, that inspires me to just try and do it a bit harder and a little bit better. So thank you for that. Oh, airborne. Thank you. Airborne God bless. Right. That's it. We need men like you getting that word out. That's for sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. Let me um you know, John, as I was just saying, I haven't really, I don't think I talked to you last time about this, is how was it to change gears for you? I mean, I hear your stories and I've heard the stories of other soft, I mean, you're still tops, at, yours and Dick's are unbelievable, but, but um, you're running 150 miles an hour, all these events, all the time, and then it ends. You wrap up your career. How was that for you? Well, it was sudden, but you know, um, and what had happened was we had a mission where our, we had a hard time getting teams on the ground. This is April 1970. They had a major target in the Asaw Valley, and they wanted us to try to do an intel report on it. So we had always gone in heavy with a six- or eight-man team. I wanted to do a four-man team, but we had a commanding officer at CCN at the time who was a tanker. He was a friend of General Abrams. He wasn't familiar with special forces, and he really didn't understand what SOG men were doing on the ground. And we had been begging for improved radios and com communication systems, and uh, we never got them. And then finally, they came out with a thing called a KY-38, which was the same, about the same size as a pre-RC-25, weighed about 20, 25 pounds. And the idea was it would attach to um, another version of the PRC-25. It was very similar. I forget what the nomenclature was. But you had to have cables that would go from the scrambler into your radio. And then every morning you had a, um, a metal, like a metal punch that had like a lot of pins at the bottom. You had to adjust these things and you would plunge it into the scrambler so you talk on the radio it would go into the scrambler your scrambled voice would go out and then they would have the same code on their aircraft so that quote they could talk to you well in the early days those damn scramblers <laughs> didn't work the ky-38 sucked and i had a four-man team he forced me to carry the radio and the scrambler, and we had to carry extra batteries for it. That's a four-man team. I'll try and explain to this guy, I want to get on the ground and move quickly. He goes, I'm your commanding officer. Okay, so I said, well, if we make enemy contact because I'm carrying all this shit for you and I'm going to be slower than I want to be, if this thing doesn't work and I'm in enemy contact, I'm going to destroy it. Okay, well, we're on the ground. We made enemy contact because of his dumb rule, and I asked for an extraction. He wouldn't extract us. I what? could hear his helicopter flying like five clicks away, and we asked for a tactical extraction. We had some contact, nothing heavy. So I go, pull us out. We're compromised. No, continue mission. Well, we made contact. The scrambler didn't work again. And so I destroyed the damn thing right in the middle of a firefight. Put a, I put a, a thermite grenade on it, 
it destroyed this thing. And uh, then they finally pulled us out on strings. And we got back to base. The helicopters landed. And the command sergeant major from uh, CCN says, the CO wants to see you right now. And okay. So we go down. He goes, uh, where's the KY-38? I said, well, sir, just like you and I said earlier, if it doesn't work, I'm in contact. I'm do- I'm going to destroy it. We were in contact. You wouldn't pull me out. So that thing didn't work. I destroyed it. Oh, I never said you could destroy it. Said, You're- I'm going to ruin your special forces career. You will be out of his base tomorrow. First light. So right at that moment, I thought after 19 months, my body was still in one piece, if not my mind. I really felt that God has sent this asshole to CCN to carry a message. Now, you've had 19 months of this. Maybe you better go home now. So we had further words, and I told him he was a disgrace to West Point. And his command sergeant major said I should salute. And I said, fuck you and fuck you, sir, and walked out. Went down, gave the team $500. They went out and bought booze, food. We had this tremendous party, heartbreaking party for me, you know. Because here's the guys I've been running with. Because our team, um, we got an opening on the team in May of 68 because the entire team had got wiped out. And they had to rebuild Idaho. And that's how I got my job because a, a six- or a seven-man team got wiped out. There's an opening now. So I got on Idaho because of that. And so now, uh, almost two years later, I'm going home, survived all those missions because of these little people. And we had a tremendous party. And everybody passed out one by one by one. About two, three o'clock in the morning, Hep, my interpreter, was the last one. (laughs) He goes, my, you need me for anything else? I said, no. He literally passed out (laughs) on the front step of our hooch. I picked him up, I dusted him off, carried him into his bed, put him in the bed, covered him up, and I stood there looking at those guys. And I go, I'm going, I'm going back to the train tomorrow. And I went, I went home in two weeks. My time in service had expired, but it was like a heartbreak. Standard going, like, what's in it for these guys? This is April 1970, and of course, five years later, we had April 30, 1975. When Saigon fell. So I went back, <clears throat> went back to school, got a job driving school buses, got involved uh, with a school newspaper, and uh, got a degree in political science, a minor in English, and then worked at newspapers. I couldn't get a real job. I worked at newspapers. I don't talk about that anymore because today's media is such a disgrace. Hmm. Majority of the media. So I just tell people since 2008, I helped. I worked at two separate nonprofits helping veterans get affordable housing. So from 2008 until my wife and I moved to Tennessee in uh, 2020, we moved our family out here and we left Tennessee and left behind the nonprofit. So now we're doing a sodcast, hoping to get book four going. So the initial adjustment per your question for me, I didn't think it was that difficult. I, mean, I always wanted to be, I missed the adrenaline, I missed the, the team, missed being the tip of the spear, which at that point was the top top secret operation in that war. So we were number one on the hit parade. 
and I missed that. But on the other hand, I was also glad to be back alive. So I had that mental dichotomy going on. And I just had, I knew I had to get my college degree. So I worked on that, worked at newspapers, and then uh, went through 30 some years at different, at a couple different newspapers, and then worked with the nonprofits. And my wife and I raised five kids. And we now wow. we got three, three grandkids. Yeah, I met her. She had two boys, I had two girls. We went for the tiebreaker. You know, like a day after those birth control pills went away, we were pregnant, man. <laughs> what, what was the tiebreaker? <laughs> yeah, she, she's now 26, and she just gave us our first grandson three years ago. Well, congratulations. That's so been a real blessing. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. Both to be lucky and good any day. Thank God for a sergeant major, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you had anything follow up on that, Sean, or not. I do. Uh, what I heard was a guy who's extremely proud of uh, what he accomplished on behalf of his country, then came out of uh, that mission profile, started seeking something more. And uh, whether it happened by happenstance or whether it was meant to be or whether it was a focused direction in uh, with Jocko, etc. Now I see you as a guy who's, again, at the top of the hit parade. You are you're serving a big and righteous purpose as a tip of the spear guy talking about the tip of the spear, which is ironic, <laughs> I suppose, but I love it. I mean, has it, what, what has it given you in the sense of comparing that to your journalist career, for lack of a better term? Oh, this is so different. I mean, with newspapers, you were limited to wherever they circulated your newspaper. So we're, I was living in Trenton, New Jersey at the time and Mercer County was the county seat. And we had papers that were delivered to every town in that county and across the river in Bucks County. And then there's a second, there are two other counties where we had newspapers delivered. And that was it. With Jocko, to this day, our first podcast now, which was, uh, gosh, it was four years ago. And I still get people that see it for the first time. And I'll get a note on social media. Hey, I just saw you and Jocko, episode 180, which is the first one. So I can't believe that shit. You guys are crazy. I said, well, yeah, it was a prerequisite. We were crazy. But <laughs> I get people, Lily from, well, I'm not going to say China, but even some people from China who appear to be honest, Poland, New Zealand, Australia, and it's often social media. And we never had a reach like that with newspapers. It was very basic, you know. So you thought about your local paper, work, get a reputation, maybe go to a bigger paper someday. But again, it would be limited. This is before the internet. You're limited as to where the delivery boy could take it. And so at the time, like the Wall Street Journal, they were the first to print their newspaper and set up print shops all over the country so that people could read the Wall Street Journal, print version. And now you get it both online or print. They're one of the few publications that had the foresight to do it and to do it the right way, in my opinion. But there's nothing compared to social media. I mean, the people we've met, um, I never would have had a phone call from Dr. Carlos or anything, you know. Had that been like the old fashioned, I could still be in Trenton, New Jersey, and he would still be at his base going, oh, who am I going to interview next? And that would be very limited based on his parameters and who he came in contact with. Where today, he and I met 
again, it was off the social media track. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. That's yeah, Absolutely. Interview, yeah. world. I'm still adjusting to it. I, um, hmm. I I should probably capitalize on a little bit more, but between uh, my wife, we have five acres here, and uh, we just returned from North Carolina where we got a nine-week-old puppy, which is changing our lifestyle <laughs> here dramatically. <laughs> yes, they do that, don't they? Oh, my God, um, yes. That's fun. I got my. Yeah, I told my wife the only thing we could do is if we, if you buy a puppy, it can't be smarter than me, and this was pretty damn smart. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Indeed, I'll need. I'll take it, Sean. Here's my last question for you, John. Yes, sir. Before we wrap up, this might be the most difficult question. Maybe, maybe not. You've gone through a lot. I've listened to some of your sawcast episodes. <clears throat> I've spoken with Dick. You seem to have adjusted extremely well after the the whole entire two years or 19 months that you were in there. What do you think contributed to that? Was it your parents? Was it your upbringing? Was it mentors? Not everybody comes out like you. We know that, unfortunately. Some right. people no, no, I understand. More. Particularly when you see the suicide rate today amongst the veterans. It's, it's heartbreaking. But in my case, my mother was mother side to founder strikers. We're all farmers in central Jersey for centuries, either farmers or carpenters. And a couple of my uncles, or second uncles, they had served in World War One, World War Two, and then they went back to their farm. And in Revolutionary War, the whole story about the Revolutionary War, our army, the service members then that went to war with George Washington, and when they were done, they went home picked up their plowshare or some of the politicians that went and formed the constitution and all, all that, that happened. But everybody, even then when they formed a government, it was part-time government because people had to take care of their lives, the real world. And I always felt like that was a, a, an example that I, I strive to live up to. So when I came home, that was in the back of my mind. I served, it was done uh, the, because the Vietnam War was scaling back. We knew there was going to be a reduction in force. And when that happens, people, no matter how long you've been in or where you've been, a lot of people are going to get screwed. So this asshole came into my life from West Point, got out, went back to school, and the mission was to get my degree. And when I was done with that, the mission, next mission was to work, go back to work. And just like I said, I couldn't get a real job. So I was a reporter and editor for a bunch of years. And then we worked with the veterans getting affordable housing for um, a little over 12 years, 12 and a half years before Anna and I moved out to Tennessee. So the direct answer is family first. My mom and dad were there, my little brother and sister, uh, friends from church, guys I grew up with at church. All of them came back. None of them saw combat. They went in the Navy, the Air Force. They had assignments that were not Vietnam, but we were still friends. We put together a church bowling team with the young guys. So we had a team with the old guys and the young guys that would compete on Monday nights at the bowling alley. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just, it just worked out. Awesome. I, I got a couple of questions here, if you don't mind, John. Uh, first no. one is, did you 
did you ever get the opportunity to bump into that poor example of leadership who jacked you up for the scrambler incident? Uh, or did he ever reach out to you and apologize for his uh, ill-gotten decisions? No, no, but I'm proud to say that a, uh, a spec four or a spec five in the awards and decorations part of the CCN, he turned him in to uh, to the uh, army investigators because this colonel had put himself in for military award. Like the day oh, boy. that I was on the ground, he refused wow. to pull me out. He put himself in for a distinguished flying cross. Why does it not surprise me? Yeah. No. So, and he had forged the signature of a couple of previous commanders. Oh, on decorations. So That's they insane. did a full investigation. He was ousted. But because he was a West Pointer, he was forced to resign, but not no no official penalties, no incarceration. They should have locked uh, the asshole up. <laughs> uh, that is insane. Uh, so my second question is, uh, my family and I, we went back to, or we went back to, we went to Vietnam uh, about 15 years ago. Our boys were kind of like three and four years old. We were there for six weeks as part of a family vacation. I just wanted to see the country. I wanted to go from the South to the North and, and basically wow. get a sense of the teenage books that I was reading at that time, your stories. I wanted to feel what it felt like to stand on that dirt. Uh, have you been back since or... No. Have you ever no. thought about going back or did anything ever hold you from going back or? Well, I thought about maybe 25 years ago when some of our guys were still alive. But all the South Vietnamese, uh, my heroes are all gone. Sad to say. And we even lost Hep. Hep got out of country, got to America. He had a pet shop in Houston that he ran. But we lost Hep on July 8th, 2017. And he was the last one that we knew about. And he had been important. Others had died before him. And uh, so no desire and it's expensive. And I don't know. It's a beautiful country. I mean, don't get me wrong. Vietnam, as you saw for six weeks here there, it's beautiful. I remember we were up at the DMZ once just flying a visual reconnaissance. And there are these spectacular, beautiful falls. I almost wanted to get a target back there just to take pictures and go on vacation a little bit, you know. It was beautiful. And yeah. uh, and again, Southeast Asia from the air is beautiful. And on the ground, the people, once you get away from the political assholes and those fucking communists, once you get away from them, the people are just like we are. They're down to earth. Maybe if they're Buddhist, it might be a different religion. But they still, they respect each other as there. The human, human kindness element is still very strong. And yeah, I, I found that like myself. That, it's expensive. I don't want to deal with the communists and go through the rigmarole. And you know you're going to have somebody, if you're an American and you're a Vietnam vet, you know those commie assholes are going to have somebody watching your every step. I don't desire to go back that much. Yeah, I understand. I, I do. And, and to your point, I did find while we're over there that uh, the Vietnamese people, uh, they're uh, a regular pedestrian, a regular individual. Uh, they really, really care about family. They're warm, loving, caring people for sure. And uh, maybe because uh, I had a Canadian flag on my backpack, uh, I didn't get as much uh, aggravation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other thing, like I got really close to my team. On my second tour of duty, I always ate dinner at night 
with the team in the indigenous mess hall. And we would play Vietnamese poker, not American, but Vietnamese poker, where they kicked my ass. It was different than American poker. And we were really close. I mean, and, you know, we'd sit around, you put your arm around each other, put your hand on somebody's thigh. It was just close camaraderie. And when I got back to the States, I'll never forget it. My first softball team was the church softball team, right? I go to my old buddy, Vince. I put my arm around and say, hey, Vince, this is really great. You and I are back together again. And you had that vibration, like, WTF, what the fuck are you doing with your arm around me like <laughs> right, that? Right, right, right. We're yeah. friends. Yeah. It wasn't Vietnam. It was really different, you know? Yeah, it is different. Yeah, and you're right. Oh. You're, that's an amazing insight. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought that up because it is a thing for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, we do have a surprise guest. It looks like the Delta guy made it for the last couple of minutes. So we'll let Bob in to say hi. Come and on we'll, in, Bob. Yeah, let's see. Hello, Bob. Yeah, he's coming on in a minute. So we Sounds got a like surprise guest, door. folks. We got Bob Keller from Gavit Resolutions. What's the... up? <laughs> How are you, Bob? Bam. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, Bob, this is Tier 1 Operator Sean Taylor from Canada, and then we have Mac V. Sog, John, Ma- John Stryker Meyer Tilt. He was the one I was telling you about. He was on Jocko Willing's show, and we were just talking about Delta a little while ago, and they're praising you guys. And I told him, I Absolutely. know a Delta guy. <laughs> He's coming on. <laughs> What's happening, fellas? Just, just staying uh, busy. Just hanging out, trying to keep up to the same pace that uh, John's setting for all of the rest of us to look at the horizon. And how come he's so far ahead of us right now? <laughs> well, his stories are so wild. It's unbelievable. Some of the stuff that he's been telling us yeah, he's I gone bet. through. It's unbelievable. You were in Vietnam. Now, Bob, you were at a couple times in, where were you deployed again? Yeah, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. Oh, and Everywhere. Syria, huh? Oh. <laughs> yeah, how was yep. that for you? Uh that was well, I was it was actually that was just for one one trip. We we're there was we we're actually the first ones over there, so it was actually a really cool mission. Oh, well that's nice. You know, yeah. but I don't know if you mind sharing the story one more time. The story when you first got deployed, you were afraid that you were not gonna get any into any firefights <laughs> you still told me you're in a jeep if i remember correctly this crazy story that lives in my head now you were saying uh, you you're in a jeep you're you're riding down somewhere and you were afraid that oh i'm not sure if i'm going to get into a firefight and there was a sniper that fired at you guys yeah well I, I, it was just a humvee i'm sure yeah something like that <laughs> i don't we're, remember what it was yeah we were in a convoy i think we were following um uh, uh a route clearance team, just a regular army route route clearance team, and it was, I'm uh, um, yeah, that was the first time ever getting shot at, and uh, yeah, I don't know if I said that I didn't think I was ever you know gonna get it on, but I don't know how long we were in country at that point, but yeah, you start thinking like, when's it gonna happen? You know, I mean this this is the reason why I went over there is to get in gunfights, you know, you you kind of <laughs> hope that it's every day. You know, when you when you first go over there, and it, it wasn't that way in the for the SF mission, and that is the reason why I ended up going to the unit is just because that's kind of how it was there when I when I got there. But yeah, it was it was kind of funny to be driving along, and it finally happens, you know, and um, everyone stopped, and like I I couldn't get out of the. I mean, the smart answer was take the Humvee, you know, to where they're they're at. Me not thinking, about, I got out of the Humvee, I started running at. Them. 
You know, like I, I couldn't part. get out of there yes, fast man. enough to get to my first gunfight, you know, like, um, yeah, when you, when you're, when you talk to civilians that, you know, they, they might watch war movies and think that, you know, gunfights are scary. You know, when, when you want to be there, that's what you want to do. So when it happens, you know, it's like, it's, it's like winning the lottery. So, <laughs> yeah, it was very different mindset. Yeah, it's, it, it is a different mindset. That's the, that's the reason why you, you keep going to the next level. So you're you're working with people with that same mindset. You know, I mean, almost I would say every 99% of the guys at the unit all have that same mindset. You know, it's, it's not a it's not a scary thing when it happens They're That's what they're there for. So everyone's in the same same state of mind. Yeah, we have something similar to that, Bob, because my first three missions we we just had scattered gunfire leaving the LZ, right? So it doesn't qualify for a CIB. So my <laughs> team leader goes, hey, you've been in country, you ran three missions in SOG, you don't even qualify for a CIB yet. WTF, yeah. you know? That's, <laughs> That's very funny. funny. <laughs> so we finally had a firefight, went down to Lance Magazine, but that, <laughs> the same thing. Yep. More dramatic than yours. <laughs> Did you ever feel that way, John? Did you ever wanted to get into it? You were you excited when you got into a gunfight? Or I, that... I, I was quite as gun ho as Bob. It's kind of like three missions without getting shot at seriously. This is cool. We're in Vietnam. <laughs> we're going across the fence in Laos. That's okay with me. I know we're going to get into a firefight. And we did. We eventually got them. We stacked up the bodies. And we got out twice. We were down to our last magazine. We went through 600 rounds, went through all the M79 rounds, and the last hand grenade. During the two firefights that were sustained for a period of time, we stacked them up like cordwood. But uh, yeah, it's like Bob. We finally got there. <laughs> By the way, there folks, we're go. we're getting ready to interview Bob Keller in a minute. Um, we're going to talk to him just after this interview. So you can wait for that episode to come out. You can follow him on Instagram at Keller Gamut Resolutions. G A U G M A G M G A M U T Resolutions Gamut Resolutions. I can't even spell. Got it. Jeez, always. Well, I don't want to take any more time from John and Sean. Yeah, my ask. sergeant major standing here waving a frying pan at me right now. All right. <laughs> well, you better stand to attention and get hustled. Yeah. Exactly. She's armed with a frying pan. It's serious, I'll tell you. <laughs> it was great seeing you again, John. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. And Sean, it's an honor to meet you. And Bob, keep up the good work. Yeah, nice Appreciate meeting you guys. It. All right. God bless. Till next time. You got it, Cheers. sir. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And, and fellas, if you don't mind, I'm going to. All right, folks. Well, hope you enjoyed that. An amazing show with John Stryker and Sean Taylor talking about some of those stories. I don't know about you. My heart was beating at 100 miles an hour. Then we had a special guest, Bob Keller, from the unit. You can find him more at uh, Instagram at Keller Gamut Resolutions. Keller Gamut Resolutions. You can also find John Stryker and his books, three books. Check out his podcast, SOGCAST, S-O-G-C-A-S-T. You can check out Sean Taylor's as well at The Collective on YouTube every day at 11 a.m. I hope you enjoyed that, everybody. Stay safe. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.